1: So good to be with Dr. Akin, uh, any of the coolest seminary pre- president in the country, you know? Amen, that's right. Uh, you guys were a little slow on that. It must be grading time or something right here, I don't know. Good to be with you this morning and good to be considering together God's Word. Uh, first of all, thank you, brother, for leading us so um, thoughtfully um, and genuinely in the praise of our Savior. Uh, we should sing with understanding, and the way you led us enables that. And I'm so thankful for how you've pressed us into the Word of God already. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Second Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We want to, this morning, spend a little bit of time thinking about verses 5 to 10 in 2 Corinthians 12. As you turn there, let me, let me tell you why this is a a little bit of a fresh burden for me and I hope will be of some encouragement to you. As Dr. Aiken pointed out, last July we transitioned back from the Cayman Islands um, to the United States and and once we got back to the United States, we discovered a number of evils that we didn't know in the Cayman Islands, traffic, kale, (laughs) an evil thing that is. Yeah. Winter. <laughs> <laughs> and as we were adjusting to life in the, in the United States again, and uh, working our way through a number of cultural transitions, my girls rediscovered malls, and, and they were all giddy about that. My son jumped into the car the second day of school, and my wife asked him, how was school today? And, and he says, um, good. Then he thought for a moment, and he says, Mom, football why don't I know this game? <laughs> and so we were aware there were some things we were going to have to learn and some things that we would have to give some attention to. And uh, one of those things was just how we would talk about ourselves as church planters and, and how we would talk about um, the church that we felt like the Lord had, had called us Um, To lead and how we would introduce that church to the community and what kinds of things we would say about that church And and this is something that all of you are going to have to figure out if you haven't already How are you going to talk about your walk with Christ? How are you going to talk about the ministries that you have or that you aspire to? How are you going to represent the local churches of which you are a part to those persons who are not yet in the family of God? How will you describe it? How will you talk about it? In other words, what kinds of things will you boast in? And this is what the Apostle Paul teaches us here in our text this morning, where his boast is. We saw it in one of the scripture references in the slides, but but here he is particularly wanting to impress upon a church that he founded, where their boast should be and where their power comes from. This is a part of the letter called the, the sort of foolish letter uh, to 2 Corinthians, this long section where he says, let me be foolish for a minute, and, and the form of foolishness that he, he takes on in his letter is boasting. And he's having to do this because there are some so-called super apostles there among the Corinthians. There's some men there who are, who are, it seems, quite fluent in their own greatness, who are are willing to build the credibility of their ministry on these extravagant claims about their ministries. And so, the apostle whom the Lord used to found that church is now being viewed by some in that church as a kind of weakling, as a kind of nothing. And this church is being drawn away in its pride and worldliness toward boasting of things that the apostle wishes now to correct. Look with me in verse 5. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray together. The oh Lord, it's already been prayed that you would strike down any haughtiness that prevents us from hearing freshly from you. We pray, O Lord, that you would strike down any pride that would cause us to boast in our own power rather than in your cross. And we pray that you would enable us to see that weakness is the way to your greater glory. Show us this from your word, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. So what I'd like for us to do is ask and answer three questions in the time that we have. First question is this. What do we think about being weak? What do we think about being weak? The second question is, does God have a purpose for our weakness? Is there some method in the madness of weakness that God allows to come into our lives? And then thirdly, why then should we embrace weakness? Now, As I said, we're parachuting down in the middle of a section of the letter where Paul, back in chapter 11, began to sort of boast as a way of exposing the, the foolishness, he calls it, of, of boasting the foolishness of pride, the foolishness of the ministries of those super apostles who are, who are drawing disciples away in a, in a worldly way. And and he comes now in verses 1 to 5, 1 to 4 of chapter 12 to give the, the last thing that he's boasting in. The last thing that he boasts in here is the revelations he's gotten from God. Being caught up, as it were, into the third heaven and seeing things which are utterly unutterable being shown things that, that human words can't capture. It would be inappropriate in some ways to, to take these, these words and to try and describe the, the majesty and the glory and the greatness and the splendor and the beauty and the brightness and the sheer wonder of, of what he's seen through God's revelation. As I said, that's the last thing he could boast in, a, a, a unique spiritual experience but what we want to see beginning in verse five is how paul thinks about himself despite those experiences how he, he he thinks then we should act and think of ourselves as christian servants so he says in verse five on behalf of this man he's still speaking of himself the man who's had this glorious spiritual experience i will boast but on behalf of myself on my own behalf i will not boast except of my weaknesses again these aren't two different men this is a rhetorical device that paul is using to put distance between himself uh, an apostle who puts his i guess toga on one leg at a time and this apostles had this extraordinary spiritual revelation why does he refrain from boasting i mean he's had such a great life he's he's the greatest of all the apostles he's traveled farther he's preached more he's planted more churches he's written most of the new testament why not tell others about all that he has done for the lord look at verse six paul says though if i should wish to boast i would not be a fool for I would be speaking the truth. Now, this this is striking, beloved. Paul's boasting would be truth-telling, but truth is not reason enough to speak of ourselves. And we can state true things about ourselves in ways that give inflated impressions, can't we? We do it in our accountability times with one another, don't we? You ask the question, uh, at, when's the last time you read the Scripture? And he says, I, I've read the Scripture every day this week. And that may be a true statement. But if you were to go on and to be more completely honest, you might say, my Scripture reading has been rote and routine, not as if I've actually met with the living God who speaks. Or we might say, yes, I've I've been praying every day this week. But if we were to go on to be honest, rather than giving the impression that we're prayer warriors, we might go on and say, but my prayers are uninspired and small. They're constricted to the concern of my own personal life and my own family. I've not prayed for the nations. I've not prayed for even loved ones on campus who are sick and battling illness. I've I've not sought God's glory in prayer." You see, how yeah, we can tell the truth and su- suggest something greater than what's really happening. But Paul puts a leash on his boasting. He puts a restraint even on truth-telling about himself, and he tells us why in verse 6. I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. And that's the principle. We don't want, more, want people to think more highly of us than the truth and humility require. We, we, we do not want others to have an assessment of us that they can't actually verify by sight and by our teaching. So this is, for Paul and for us, this is really a matter of integrity, isn't it? We don't want people to project an image who... We don't want people to think of us a certain way and not actually be that way. That's what entertainers and celebrities and and rappers do. No, as Christians, we we want to close the gap between our image and our reputation and our claims and our observable lived lives. We want to close the gap between what we do and what people hear us say and, and what people see us do. We want what we say and do to match as closely as possible to who we really are. Now, in other words, this, this verse, verse 6, is Paul's way of saying, let's keep it real. Let's be authentic. And closing the gap between what we claim to be and what others see us to be is that's how a church avoids becoming a show, beloved. This is how a church avoids the the trap that Sardis fell into in Revelation 3, 1. You remember what the Lord says there? They have a reputation that they are alive, but they are in fact dead. And so in our churches, you know, it's striking, thinking about how to talk about Anacostia River Church and looking at various materials and and seeing various ads for churches. How many times I, I see a church say something like, come and enjoy explosive worship which is a curious kind of term, you know, looking around for the bomb, is. is—or how often they say things like, come and hear dynamic preaching, and I'm thinking, I I wouldn't cross the street to hear my preaching. So you guys are bigger suckers coming this morning than I am. We, We don't want to make claims about reaching the community with puffed up stats, right? We we don't want to offer a hope that depends upon us, that draws people's attention to us, rather than depending upon God who alone is powerful to save. We don't want people's faith to rest upon our eloquence, upon our slick ads. We don't want their faith to rest upon our persuasiveness. We want their faith to rest upon the power of God. And that requires of us restraint. And boasting in the right things, he refrains from saying even true things if it would give the wrong impression. He doesn't start a lot of sentences with I. He doesn't play one-upsmanship with the stories that he tells. He doesn't name-drop in order to appear connected. Yeah, when I was with P- Peter in Jerusalem, you know, we was kicking it, and guess who should come up? James, man. <laughs> it's not Paul's way. And he doesn't inflate his stories or even tell the most fantastic aspects of real stories in order to move people with how great he is. He refrains. There's perhaps something in him that wants to, but Paul puts a leash on it. And it begs a question for us. How restrained are we in our boasting. How restrained are we in speaking of ourselves? And and, and do we restrain ourselves, even if it would be truth-telling, so that something greater still might be seen, the glory of God in Jesus Christ? Men can't look at us and see Jesus. If, in fact, in looking at us, it ends with us. We're meant to show them someone else. How do you feel about your weakness? Is it something you avoid and and something you downplay in order that you might emphasize your strength, or is it something you embrace, is it something you reveal? in order that the power of God might be seen. Brings us to our second question. Does God have a purpose for our weaknesses? We see that there in in 7 to 9. I mean, is all our weakness bad, or is there some method to this madness? Well, God has a purpose in everything he does, doesn't he, beloved? The Father does not waste a a single experience in in our lives. That's, That's true even of the weaknesses that we feel, beloved in paul's case verse 7 god plans to use paul's weakness to do one main thing you see it stated there twice to keep me from being too elated or becoming conceited and you see there at the end to keep me from being too elated or becoming conceited god god has given us bookends in this verse and everything that happens between the, this little section seven and nine is it, really sort of sandwiched between that goal of of keeping the apostle humble rather than puffed up This is just like God, isn't it? He hates pride. What does the Bible tell us? God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And pride was that distinguishing mark of our adversary, isn't it? It's a distinguishing mark of Satan who rebelled against God and was cast out of heaven. And pride is that tendency in man to, to think of him, himself in increasingly godlike ways. It's the way our hearts rebel against the one true and living God. And he hates it with a holy hatred. So God's purpose in Paul's weakness Is to keep Paul from getting full of himself, from getting puffed up, from becoming proud. In verses 7 to 8, you see there, he uses two means uh, to keep Paul on his knees. He uses two means to keep Paul appropriately lowly. The first one is suffering. Paul writes, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. This is a marvelous comment, isn't it? Now, there are all kinds of thoughts about what this thorn is. Some say it was a physical ailment because Paul says there it was in the flesh. Some people think it was the persecution that Paul suffered because of his faith in Christ. Uh, others think it was some form of spiritual harassment because the messenger is from Satan. If, if you really want to know, ask Professor Nathan over here. He'll, he'll, he'll tell you. <laughs> but there's no doubt of its source. It's satanic. It's a messenger of Satan. Paul faces spiritual opposition that has physical effects in his life. And here's the amazing thing. When you step back to think about where that thorn ultimately came from, it was God himself. God was using even the demonic beings to serve a Godward purpose. All that happens to Paul happens under God's sovereign rule, and that's true of our suffering, too. Every pain we have tasted, every, every affliction we have endured, every ounce of suffering that has come into our lives, even if the immediate cause is a, is a demonic source, the, the, the ultimate cause, the, the one standing behind it and the one orchestrating it for our good, Romans eight twenty eight is this sovereign God who rules in all things. And so he uses the demon of pride, to keep the apostle from pride. Our spiritual warfare keeps us from becoming spiritual wayfarers, beloved. And unrelenting spiritual harassment may be God's way of keeping us from Satan's ways. Every pain is not punishment. Have you ever thought that the most piercing trial or suffering you experience just might be the way God is keeping you to himself? He is not rejecting you. He is protecting you. God opposing the proud is sometimes a grace, not a punishment. How does knowing that help us read and interpret our suffering? For we are related to God as his own dear children, and he loves us. The kind of love that caused John in 1 John 3 to cry out in rhetorical expression, how great the Father's love for us, that we should be called the children of God. All of our pain is not punishment. Sometimes it's protection. And that's the case with Paul, and we can trust because God is good that that is often the case with us. And he's keeping this messenger humble, and it's a wonderful thing because pride in a preacher is a particularly ugly problem. The one whose job is pointing to God should not have any fingers left to point to himself. All of his pointing should be to that Christ who has saved us. And so when the Lord shows a a preacher or an aspiring preacher or a a pastor or aspiring pastor or a missionary or a seminary professor, when he shows his Christian servants this kind of grace that he has shown Paul, revelation from his word and and revelation of his greatness, then then the one thing that he will commit himself to do is to keeping us humble. The greater the revelation, the greater the humility. (laughs) And that's him being kind to us. So, pray for your pastors. Pray for your professors. Pray pray for yourselves as college students and seminary students. Pray against pride. Pray that Southeastern would never become a factory for producing puffed-up eggheads. The goal of the commandment is love. Pray that what's produced here are people who love the Lord their God with all of their heart and all of their mind and all of their strength and all of their knowing is in service to all of their loving. Pray that Lord would graciously keep us from pride. He uses suffering to do that. Notice the second thing that he uses in verse 8. Not only suffering, but also silence. Paul says there three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Whatever this thorn is, Paul understands that God can take it away. And whatever this thorn is, it must really hurt because Paul pleads there with the Lord three times in prayer. But God doesn't grant Paul's requests. And it's good for us to ask ourselves this question. What would have happened to Paul if God had taken away the thorn in the flesh? Well, most likely, the very pride that God was keeping him from would have overcome him, wouldn't it? It's worth sometimes asking ourselves, what unforeseen bad things might happen to me if God grants me this thing I keep asking for? I I don't know about you, but I almost never think of my prayers that way. I, I assume that the thing I'm asking for is actually the best thing for me. And I assume a kind of omniscience as I keep asking for that thing. Lord, Lord, give me this. I, this would be great, God. You know, think of what I could do here. And, and yet the Lord, who really is omniscient, who really does see the end from the beginning, he's looking at me and he's thinking, no, son, if I give you this, there's a wreck that will happen in your life. So I marvel because Paul only prays for this three times. If I felt like I had a demonic torturer <laughs> troubling me, I'd be praying that three times an hour, right? But God in his silence says no. And God sometimes does more for us by giving less to us. And this was the case with Paul. Unanswered prayers, sometimes how God does more for us than we can imagine. His refusals keep us from deeper regrets. Sometimes there are worse things that can happen to us than unanswered prayer, like pride. And that's true, beloved, if you're here and you're single and you feel the pain and the struggle of your singleness and you have often asked the Lord, give me a spouse, give me a husband, give me a wife, and you're sometimes tempted to think, unless I have a husband, unless I have a wife, my, my life is unbearable. let stop for a moment and consider all the difficult marriages around you and ask yourself, is it possible that God is keeping me from a worse thing by denying a good thing? How many times I've sat in the pastor's study and counseled with couples and and watched them as their prayers have gone for sometimes years from, Lord, give me a spouse, give me a spouse, give me a spouse, and then they get the spouse and they go, Lord, give me a different one, give me a different one, give me a different one. And one wonders if they had heard what God says in verse 9 as not only applicable to Paul but applicable to themselves in their singleness if their pain now, which seems worse than the first pain of loneliness, would have been avoided altogether. Verse 9, God said to Paul, and he says to us in our unanswered prayers, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Do you believe that? Do you believe that for yourself, not just for Paul, but but for yourself? In in whatever ministry you're aspiring to, in whatever way you're endeavoring to serve the Lord, in whatever way you feel the infirmities and the corruptions of your humanity, you feel the weaknesses in your life, and whatever longings you have for relief from those weaknesses and relief from that pain, can you hold on with the hands of faith to this line? My grace is sufficient for you. My kindness is enough for you. It it is sufficient. It isn't insufficient. There is no end to the inexhaustible stores of God's kindness. There, There is no weakness or no point where God runs out of grace and he doesn't have enough kindness and care for you to keep you in whatever weakness you're facing. It is sufficient, as is all things that God does. And can you hold fast to the second part of the verse? for my power is made perfect in weakness. That's why his grace is sufficient. Because (laughs) because as we are enduring in his grace, he is perfecting or completing his power. And he's doing that in the context of our weakness. At the very moment where we feel wasted and exhausted and unable and, and spent and limited and broken and crushed, there, there in that place is where God's power is perfected. Will you hold to that and believe that and bring that down right here into your bosom in the course of hard living in the name of Christ? And will you store that up for the day when suffering will come? If suffering and weakness feels far away from you now and you feel strong now and like things are going well, trust me, beloved, because we live in a fallen world, brokenness and pain and suffering will come. And so will you now store this up for that time when you will need it? God's grace is sufficient for you and his power is made perfect in our weakness. This brings us to our final question as we close. Why then should we embrace this weakness? Well, it should be evident by now, but just to close on verses 9 and 10, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then, 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 beloved, I am strong. Let me give you just one purpose to embrace this weakness from this text. It's in the phrase there that begins verse 10, for the sake of Christ. For the glory of Christ. For the name of Christ. For the praise and exaltation and the fame and the notoriety and the splendor and the loveliness of Christ. We are called here to embrace our weaknesses. It says even more in verse 10, we are called here to be content with not only weaknesses, but insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. Everywhere the Christian life gets hard, we are called then to embrace contentment for the name of Christ, for the sake of Christ, that his glory might be revealed and seen. And this is folly to the natural mind. This is foolish to the natural mind. We want to escape insults and persecutions and hardships, but that's where Christ has located His glory. It's in those places where His people, content in Him, live for the sake of His name. And isn't this what Christ did for us? Didn't He embrace our weaknesses? By taking upon himself our flesh? And didn't he go to the very ends of weakness, to the point of death? Gave himself on the cross. He hung his head and he died. And Satan's minions rejoiced, and and the underworld quaked with celebration because they didn't know three days later he would rise again in splendor and in glory so that the very moment of Christ's ultimate weakness becomes the moment of his ultimate display of his power, power to redeem sinners from their sins and to rob hell of souls. It is in his weakness that Christ displays his power. It is in the clothing of himself in frail humanity and the enduring of the wrath of God upon the cross and the expiring of life and the corruption of the grave. But it is in that weakness that God's power to save sinners is perfected. And it is likewise in the embrace of our weakness. If you're here and you're not yet a Christian and you've been depending upon your strength and you've been depending upon your reputation and this this message sounds to you like foolishness. You don't want to show anybody your weakness lest they take advantage of you. Beloved, it is in the surrender of your strength and the admission of the weakness you're trying to hide, the weakness of sin, the weakness of your thought life, which keeps bending toward unrighteous things. The weakness of your willpower to resist things that you don't want to do or to make happen things you do want to come to pass. It is in the confession, agreeing with God that your sin has made you weak and that you deserve his wrath, that you then finally begin to taste omnipotence the power of God to raise you from the death of sin to everlasting life. Embrace your weakness in repentance. That's all repentance is, the admission of weakness. And put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is to incline yourself upon a power that is perfect and follow him in the obedience of faith. And you will have the promises of eternal life and reconciliation with God, adoption into His family, everlasting joy, and pleasures forevermore in the presence of God. We, if we are Christians, have put our hopes in Christ, not because we were making a strong intellectual decision but because we had come to see our weakness and we were given to see that our weakness was no barrier to his power. Trust him. Let's pray together. Father, we give you praise that indeed our weakness is no barrier to your power. You have shown that shown us that over and over again in your holy word. From Abraham and Sarah, who were near death, who conceived of a promised child, to Jesus, your son, who tasted death, was raised from the grave, to the various ways in which our own experience teach us that when we were weak, you were strong, And so in all of these ways, help us to build an Ebenezer that we might remember the trust in you and that we might, for the sake of your name, embrace our weakness and see you glorified. Cause your power to rest upon us, we ask, and grant that we should live in it. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary.